Hello and welcome back to the Church Split and our Unity Through Diversity series. If you remember me from our last session, uh, my name is Ian Runwick. I am a pastor at Valley Bible Church here in Stephen City, Virginia. I'm glad to be back. Will had invited me on a number of weeks ago now uh, to do a series on dispensationalism because I happen to be uh, a dispensationalist and I teach it week in, week out, uh, very familiar with the subject matter. And uh, as you can see from our last video, uh, I am no longer in Kentucky. Uh, I am back in my home office. As you can see, these beautiful books behind me. I am back in my home office in Stephen City and glad to be back. The conference at the Ark that I went to was great. It was on human sexuality and the Bible and kind of this war that our culture is having with sexuality and 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 the, the war that seems that the church is having with with the culture's definition uh, of what sexuality is and how it is expressed in humanity. That's a whole different topic than what we're addressing today. If you remember last week in our video, we talked about uh, or started our discussion on dispensationalism. And I do kind of want to rehash a little bit about uh, what dispensationalism is, because uh, if you haven't watched that first video, please go back and do so. Uh, but it's been a while probably since you've watched the last one. So I kind of want to give you a, a refresher course, if you will, through what uh, exactly uh, is dispensationalism. Uh, dispensationalism finds its roots uh, uh, in the word oikonomia, okay, or dispensation, as we would say in the English. In Greek, this word is where we get our word economy from. Uh, the economy, as we know it, is the rules by which our financial institutions are run. And so because of that, you know, there's debt, there's credit, there's... Um, you know, stock exchanges, there's, there's all of these different things, equity, you know, all of that, that mortgages, that kind of thing that go into how our financial institutions are run. And it behaves by a certain set of rules. That's what we know our economy by. Much in the same way, when the Bible uses the word oikonomia, or again, we would translate it as dispensation. We see that in the Bible. Um, it is talking about the house rules, literally the translation of oikos and nomia, oikonomia. You smash those two words together, you get the word house rules or house laws. <clears throat> it is the rules by which a household in the Roman Empire would have been run. I use the example of kind of what we would think of as upper citizenry, right? The lords, the ladies, different terminology for a different time, but it works for our purposes here. The lord of the manor would set out the rules. He would give it to his major domo or the, the head butler who would then dispense the rules to the staff. Now that set of rules, like when the Lord wanted tea, when he wanted dinner, breakfast, etc., when he wanted the shopping done, how he wanted his holdings managed, you know, hiring, firing, all of that ran through the Lord who gave the rules and then on to the uh, major domo who then would give it out to the staff. Um, the major domo in the biblical sense would be considered a steward. Now we see Paul use this same kind of terminology, dispensation of mystery, dispensation of grace, right? Uh, in Ephesians 2, where he calls himself the steward of this new dispensation of grace, that being the church, the body of Christ. 
This is kind of where we get into where dispensational theology comes from. Dispensational theology seeks to uh, manage, interpret, exposit, uh, handle the word by the different house rules we see expressed throughout the word itself, right? So there are rules that we can see, and we can see the rules given. We can see how those rules were lived out or not normally by humanity, and how then God comes in and changes the rules to accommodate humanity's failure in keeping those rules in the first place. Um, And so we look for those oikonomia, those house laws, and that's how we divide up the dispensations. I went over last week, or yeah, last week, how um, the method by which we divide them can vary. Sometimes there's as few as two dispensations. Here's looking at you, covenant theologians, and our covenant theology, right? And uh, there can be as many as as eight, which is or seven plus one, which is what I am. Um, and there's a whole lot of gradation in between. And the reason I tongue in cheek say that about covenant theology is because even covenant theology acknowledges that there's a difference in the way the old covenant is treated and executed and how humanity is to behave. And there's this new covenant and new set of rules by which humanity is to behave. And they're different, right? Old covenant, new covenant, you would call it the old dispensation or the new dispensation, right? doesn't matter. It's still a dispensational model, right? It just has a different name. Um, what we're talking about in terms of like a seven dispensations, a seven plus one, right? So being innocence, conscience, uh, human government, promise, law, church, uh, and then you've got the thousand year kingdom, the millennial reign, and then you've got um, eternity to come, right? Um, so as a plus one is eternity to come. And um, the, 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 the spoiler alert for that one is that there's not going to be any failure for that last dispensation. It will be the dispensation to end all the other dispensations. And so we've got this kind of uh, model going on, and we can see uh, that there are clear uh, delineations between when a rule set is given, when a rule set is failed by those who are to carry it out, and when a new rule set is given. And this, uh, there's always a principal actor. So for, say, for innocence, right, which pretty much spans a very short, very minute section of scripture, uh, Genesis 1 through 3 or Genesis 2 through 3, if you don't want to include the creation narrative. Uh, but that's innocence, right? And there's a very specific rule for innocence, right, where, where uh, Adam was innocent, right? He didn't have sin. That's what we mean by innocence, right? He didn't have sin. Um, and God basically gave Adam and Eve these sets of rules, right? And so you have, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have be fruitful and multiply. You have exercise dominion over the earth, right? Um, that is innocence, right? Well, Adam obviously failed. His failure was that he did indeed eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he was, his, his judgment was that he was cast out. You see, there's always this cycle. I mentioned last week, the judges cycle, right? If you're unfamiliar with the judges cycle, um, it goes kind of like this in the book of judges, right? Israel cries out for a judge, 
right? Because they're being oppressed. So Israel is oppressed. Israel cries out for a judge. God delivers the judge. The judge delivers Israel. The judge rules for a time. The people are happy for a time. The people fall into sin. The people become oppressed. And then the people cry out for a judge, right? That's kind of this cyclical nature of the judge's cycle um, and how it's expressed normally uh, in the- theological circles, right? There might be a couple of extra steps that I added in there that kind of are grouped together, but you get the picture. Um, and much in the same way with the dispensation, God gives the rules, humanity keeps the rules, humanity then, then fails to keep the rules, there is judgment, and then new rules are given. All right, so that's that's the cycle of a dispensation. So for innocence, we have God laying out these rules for Adam and Eve to live by. Uh, they obviously fail in those rules, so they are cast out. And now they are told to live, because they have the knowledge now of the difference between good and evil, they now have the ability to live by their conscience or what they think is right. Now, there are some elements of innocence, this dispensation of innocence, that carry through. And that's really important to note, is that even though a dispensation might be over, there are still elements of dispensation that carry through, right? So, for example, uh, there is a re-giving of the uh, be fruitful and multiply. There is a re-giving of have dominion over the earth. And, you know, the, the next one is live how thou wilt, right? Live, live how you will. Uh, live according to your conscience. And that kind of rules from Genesis 4 to Genesis 8. And then we have, of course, Noah and the flood and the destruction and the judgment that is uh, leveled on earth because those who lived on the earth sinned continuously. There was there was no righteousness to be found among men except for in Noah and his family. And so God saves Noah and his family, levels a flood against the earth. And after the flood, there is again a re-giving of the be fruitful and multiply, uh, have dominion over the earth, right? And there's a change uh, in dietary law, right? Now that you can eat animals, right? You couldn't before, believe it or not, you couldn't eat, eat animals. That wasn't a rule change that happened until after the flood. So now you can eat animals, uh, but now you're going to rule yourselves. And there's this inst- uh, there's this giving, this institution of capital punishment where it didn't exist before, right? That's the big one for human government. There's this lex talionis that comes in, this eye for an eye that is given to Noah, right? If a man sheds blood, so shall his blood be shed, right? There's this... Um, uh, this institution of capital punishment, right? And humans are now to govern themselves. The weak will, or the strong will rule the weak, right? And that's kind of how this works. This particular inst- institution of human government is one that we have seen reign from the time that God institutes it in in, in Genesis nine until now. There's there's never been a revocation of humans to lead themselves right? Of capital punishment. There's never been a revocation. Now, I know some people are going to fight me on that, but there's nowhere explicitly where God or Jesus says we are doing away with capital punishment, right? There is forgiveness that's to be had, of course. There is all of this, but the human government, the job of human government is to exercise the appropriate use of force according to, you know, again, Genesis 9 through 11. Well, of course, there's a failure here, right? I mean, obviously, we're not still living under one language or anything like that anymore. So you have humanity, again, failing to live up to what the rules of this dispensation are, right? You have the Tower of Babel, 
right? Humanity congregated all in one place. They all spoke one language. They likened themselves unto God. They were building a tower by which they could touch the heavens. Uh, they basically, you know, were repeating the, the same old sins in the same old ways, right? And so God judges them. He comes down, confuses their language, forcibly scatters them over the earth, right? And they're judged. And that's kind of where we left off last week. And like I said, they're very rapid fire. You see three dispensations within the span of about nine chapters, right? So from Genesis 2, uh, with the institution of the rules for Adam and Eve, to the, give, or to the scattering of the people over the face of the earth, Genesis 2 to Genesis 11, within that span, within that time frame, you've got a lot, a lot of... Uh, or you've got three dispensations, okay? And like I said, they were super rapid fire. But now we're going to start to slow down a little bit because we see here in Scripture where there's this shift, right? So uh, it's been following a couple of different families, uh, kind of, again, rapid fire. We start with Adam and Eve, and then we go to Noah and his family, and then we go to, you know, the following of the generations from there. And then we get uh, a, a sort of a, a shift again, to this man named Abram. And this is what starts uh, in Genesis 12. This is what starts uh, the giving of the promise, right? So God calls Abram out. He says, I will make of you a great nation, right? That happens in Genesis 12. And um, as, uh, you know, as Abram starts to go through and try to figure out what's going on and, and how all of this is interrelating, why this God is coming to him and calling him out, right? And, and um, you know, calling him to be a, an elect, right? Uh, we use that term not as Calvinists would use it, but he was chosen, right, out of all of the people. It was Abraham and his family, or Abram at this point, and his family that were called out, right? Eklektas, that's what a called out, called out means, right? Um, the called out ones. And so he was called out. And God says to him in Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation. Now, the cool thing about promise is that depending on who you read, and I'm going to give you kind of the, the standard, um, what I would call Acts 2 dispensationalism, okay? That's kind of the most popular one we've got out there. Acts 2, I'm more of a mid-Acts, so I'm mad, right? I'm always mad, right? Mid-Acts dispensationalism. And then there's actually Acts 28 dispensationalism, and we'll get into that in the next video because there's a lot to chew on there. But depending on which model you're going from, I'm going to go from the model of Acts 2, which says that promise runs the course of Genesis 12 through Genesis 50. So that means from Abram to Joseph, right? We have this huge swath of scripture that is dedicated to promise. It's too much to cover in this format, but the basic idea of the promise is God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. Right. And then there are rules that Abraham is supposed to follow. Uh, I keep saying Abram. I mean, they're the same person. Right. So but a, there are rules that Abram is supposed to follow. Right. He is supposed to have a son with his wife, Sarah or Sarai. Right. He is supposed to, um, you know, uh, travel the land. Right. You know, go where God tells him to do. Go what, or do what God tells him to do. Right. He's supposed to do all of these things. And God continually tests his obedience, and he fails quite a bit, 
right? But his failures really aren't judged because we see he's called a man of faith in, in Hebrews. The failure is on the Jews remaining in Egypt after Joseph, okay? So Acts 2 or kind of the, the, the Acts 2 model of dispensationalism can tend to say that the dispensation of promise runs from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50. Now, I'm a little bit of a weird duck. I'm going to say that the dispensation of promise actually runs from Genesis 12 to Exodus 19. And the reason that I say that is because Exodus up, up, up until Exodus 19, the law has not been given yet. There hasn't been a rule change yet, right? Come to Exodus 20, and that's where the Ten Commandments are first given, and that's where we can see a radical shift in rules, right? Now, these shifts, here's another important thing to note, aren't instantaneous, right? As, like I said, some of these delineations in Scripture would suggest. It's not instantaneous. It's a gradual process as, uh, like I said in the last video, uh, dispensationalism really speaks to the fact that there's this thing called progressive revelation. And by that, I don't mean liberal ideology, okay? I mean that there's this idea that God reveals uh, his plan in fits and starts and bits and pieces, right? And that we never get the full picture or even understand the full picture, even if we get the full picture, until later, right? There's this, it's continually progressing in terms of what God is showing to us as the church or to Israel as the, the, the people, the Jewish people, right? There's always this progressive revelation. And again, I don't mean progressive in terms of literal, liberal political ideology. I mean progressive in bit by bit, piece by piece. So there's this progressive revelation of what promise looks like. And the failure for Israel is that they stayed in the land of Egypt instead of returning to Canaan, Right? Remember, after the whole reason that that Joseph and his family went to Egypt, other than him being sold into slavery, of course, was because there was a famine in their home country. Well, they left, and rather than returning to the land of promise, as they should have, they stayed in Egypt, and the judgment that was levied upon them was enslavement, right? And they were enslaved for hundreds of years in Egypt. Until finally, Moses comes along. Moses delivers Egypt, or excuse me, delivers the Jews, the, you know, the, his tribe, the 12 tribes from Egypt, right? Um, well, like at that point it was 13, right? Because Joseph gets a double portion. Uh, but eventually one of those gets folded into to another. But the, he delivers the, the tribes from slavery in Egypt, takes them through the ocean, right? or World of the Red Sea, takes them into, and that's a translation issue, by the way. Don't get me started on that, because um, we'll have a big debate about whether it's the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. I know, it's a little bit of a um, rabbit trail, and I love rabbit trails, but now's not the time, Ian. Um, so <laughs> we get into the the part where he, you know, he delivers the people through the sea. Um, he gets into the, you know, the outskirts of the desert and wilderness into the promised land, kind of. Right, he gets promised land adjacent, but uh, you see that you know we don't see. Excuse me, what we don't see is a shift in uh, uh, the way God is dealing with His people um, until 
Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is when we see the giving of the law, right? And then from Exodus 20, you've got a progressive revelation of the law as Moses is spending more time with God. It started off with the 10, and by the time you're done, it's what, 613, 614 laws, right, that end up being given. Um, And then as if that wasn't hard enough to try to keep all of those laws, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite erected a fence around the law to make it all the more complicated, right? That is what the law was. And it was revealed slowly over time through Moses, right? After Moses, uh, Moses is the lawgiver, right? And, and, uh, scripture makes that very clear, um, that Moses is the lawgiver. He's the one who gives the law to the people. And, but there's this, there's this slow transition between promise, right? And this new work, uh, that God is doing through the law, right? Now there are still elements of the promise that endure, right? God is still going to be faithful to the people of Abram, Abraham, right? He's still going to give them the land. He's still going to um, be with them. He's still going to keep them. He's still going to make their descendants outnumber the sand on the seashores, right? All of those elements of that promise still stand. What is different now um, or or persists through, right? Uh, That he will be a blessing to to the nations, right? That still uh, follows through where it changes though, and how it's done, uh, because Israel failed to go back to the promised land. Now the promised land is occupied. Um, you know, we see Benjamin and, and Joshua, um, who come back, right. And they are basically like, we can take it. We can do it. We have the manpower. We have it. And, you know, of course the other 10 spies come back and like, ah, the land is full of giants. We can't take it right? Because Israel wasn't where it was supposed to be, the land was overrun and it causes a bunch of problems for them later, right? Under Saul and and David who have to basically reunify the land. I mean, even Joshua and all of his great uh, prowess and leadership wasn't able to do it. Um, But we have this uh, presentation of what the law is. Uh, And again, it's very gradual. It doesn't happen all at once. But once it's given... Right. Once the law is given, uh, then it endures, I would say, from Exodus 20 all the way through. And now if you're Acts 2, right, it would endure all the way through Acts 2, right, which is where Peter gives his sermon um, and basically starts the church. Right. For lack of a better, for lack of a more refined way to put that, he starts the church and Acts 2. Now, I, being a mid-Acts dispensationalist, would say that that's not where the church starts. I would say that it goes, it persists through until the that kind of gray area in Acts 7 to 13, where there's this transition from Peter and the 12 to the ministry of Paul, which is very different, okay? It's very different than the ministry that Paul, or excuse me, that Peter and the 12 had, right? It's a very... A uh, different kind of system. It's a different. It's a different economy entirely, um, and so the law uh, persists through that point in time. All right, Christ is the fulfillment of the law, and the fulfillment of the law. What the Jews were looking for was for Him to come back, which He was supposed to. Uh, but then the, the the nation of Israel rejects Him as Messiah, and that's kind of where we get um, the uh, slow transition from the law and the kingdom, okay, because the kingdom was the ultimate fulfillment of the law, 
to this new thing, the church, the body of Christ, right? There's this a distinction made between the bride of Christ and the body of Christ, okay? And that happens uh, as, as the law is transitioning out and the ecclesial age or the age of the church or the, age, the dispensation of grace, you'll hear me say that a lot, comes in and kind of um, parenthetically supplants for a time um, the, the kingdom program, okay, or the program of the final and ultimate fulfillment of the law, right? All that to say that, like I said, the, these two things being promise and law uh, take up a massive chunk of our Bible, right? A massive chunk. And like I said, in this short form format where we don't really have a lot of time to go into this because um, there's just so much here, right? It, it, um, it, it is staggering the amount of, of territory these two things cover. Um, if you like, you remember the, the fathers, the Jewish fathers, right? And so you have Abram, you have uh, Isaac, or you have uh, Jacob, you have Isaac, you have, um, you know, you have Joseph, you have all these, these fathers of the faith, right? Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, and, and, you know, all of his, the, all the 12 sons of, of Isaac, right? Um, you have all of these different people, or excuse me, it's all the sons of Jacob, all these different people, right? Who just basically are trying to uh, live up to the promise that they have been given um, and trying to live out what God has called them to do. And of course, like I said, they fail because they, well, they stay in Egypt. They don't go home, right? I mean, why would you leave Egypt if you were, if you were Joseph, if you were Joseph's descendants? You have a pretty cush life, right? But see, the thing about that is, uh, in the beginning of Exodus, you have uh, the proclamation that a pharaoh arose or leadership arose in in Egypt who didn't remember Joseph or what Joseph had done or what Joseph's people had done. You see, human memory is actually pretty short comparatively. And so um, over the course of time, Joseph and his contribution, his salvation of Egypt, right, was forgotten in large part. And so you have this deliverance of Israel that is kind of, like I said, it starts the transition period, uh, the deliverance of Israel from, uh, from Egypt by Moses. Um, and, it, and it starts this transition toward where we see the giving of the law in Exodus 20. Um, just to kind of give you a quick breakdown of just how many years this covers, right? Um, so we have, uh, if you were to take, right, the young earth creation stands, okay? Now, you, you can or you can't. Uh, that's, that's completely up to you. Um, but according to the generations, you have about a thousand years between the fall of man and the flood. Okay, just based on generations. All right, the, the fall of man, if we trace it back, happened maybe 4,000 BC. Uh, the flood happened around 2350. If you're going by the generations, the genealogies, and you're a young earth creationist like I am. Um, and then you have the call of Abraham in about 2000 BC, right? About 500 years later, right? So promise lasts about 500 years. About 500 years later, you have the giving of the law of Moses, right? And until the law uh, is given... Uh, or excuse me, until uh, the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul starts, which would have been 37 AD, you have this reign of the law of Moses. That's pretty impressive, right? 
Uh, and so about 37 AD uh, is when Paul starts his ministry, which is, again, this is kind of the mid-Acts dispensational standpoint, which is where the church starts, right, as we know it. Temple's destroyed in AD 70. At some point in the future, we'll have the rapture, we'll have the seven years of tribulation, uh, we'll have the return of Jesus Christ, and then we'll have that last and final dispensation, the thousand-year kingdom. Uh, well, not maybe final, but then you have the final dispensation of eternity future, right? I know this has been a lot because, it honestly, there's a lot of ground to cover between these two things. And I thought a general discussion might be a little bit of a better format to take with this because of the fact that there is so much. Um, let's turn, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, um, and we'll look at how God sets up the call of Abraham, right? So Abraham uh, is just chilling one day, and I'm reading out of the ESV, which is the English Standard Version, or if you're an IFB guy, it's the especially stupid version. I don't think that. I'm not IFB. Uh, but uh, this is the English Standard Version, okay? It's actually a really good translation, uh, if you like good, solid, scholarly work, it's the one that I preach out of. It's the one that I study out of. Um, it's the, it's my go-to. It's the English Standard Version. It's really good. Um, don't get me started on uh, translations because we'll be here all night. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and uh, him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? So there's the giving of, of the promise, Right? That is the rule by which Abraham is to uh, conduct himself in the dispensation of promise, right? It's, I mean, it's as far as dispensations go, it's pretty, uh, pretty timid as far as uh, Moses or Moses's Abraham's responsibilities, right? Um, granted, I didn't say it was easy, but compared to some of the other dispensations, uh, it's definitely doesn't seem, at least on surface level to be all that more or all that less complicated or all that more complicated, I should say. Right. I mean, you have here and um, I mean, this would be the hard part, right? Go from your country. I mean, think about that. You're, you're Abraham, right? Or you're Abram at this point, you have a good life, right? You have, you're established as far as a, a home, you have your family around you, you have your support structure. I mean, in the ancient Near East, family was everything. And if you had your family, right, you were set because family took care of family. So Abraham is being told, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. To his credit, Abram, Abraham Abram, does this, right? He leaves and he wanders through the wilderness until he finds uh, eventually the land that God gives him, Right. And that is where we find his descendants all that much later down when we get to Joseph, right? That's where we find them until Joseph is sold into slavery so that he can save the nation of, of, of Egypt, right? And by saving the nation of Egypt, save his own family who God promised Abram he would take care of, right? All those generations later. That's pretty powerful stuff, right? It's pretty powerful stuff. God makes that promise. God keeps that promise. Now we see elements of the promise through the law, 
right? If you look in Deuteronomy, you see the blessings and the cursings, right? So Israel will be blessed if they do these things. Israel will be cursed if they do if they don't do these things, right? And if Israel is blessed, they will be a blessing to the nations. If Israel is is cursed or under a, the curse, they will be a, a burden to the nations. And we really we see that play out through the dispensation of law. Right, Israel does not live up to the law. They don't live up to their side of the 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 equation. Right, they don't balance it out, and so we see God judging them for their failure. Right, and then you have up until um, you know you have the the two invasions. Right, and then you have uh, the destruction of the first temple. You have two exiles. Right, I mean you have all of this stuff just going on. Right. And then it's not until Nehemiah comes back that they actually uh, start to rebuild the temple. Right. And it's not as grand as Solomon's temple that David stored up for Solomon. Right. It's not, it's nothing near like what it should be or what it was. And there were people, now keep in mind, this wasn't all that long. There were people who still remembered what the old temple looked like. Right. But the judgment for failing to keep up to the end of the bargain of the dispensations is steep. Sometimes, right? It can be really, really steep. And that was no different, right? That was no different. So Abraham is promised that God will make him a great nation. Abraham is promised that God will um, take him and bless the nations, right? The whole plan for Israel from the beginning was to be a blessing to the nations, they were supposed to be the representation on earth of God Almighty, right? They were supposed to be the ones who brought everyone into worship of God. But instead, what do we see? We see Israel become very insular, especially during the kingdoms or the king the kingdom period, right? We under not necessarily under David. But as, as uh, you know, the kings start to um, become more and more evil, we see them actually very insulated, uh, isolated from the rest of the world uh, up until they need help, right? But they become a burden to the rest of the world and to their neighbors around them, which is what they never should have been. They should have been the one carrying the burden of other nations, just like God says they should have been. And you see, like I said, just because we have this shift in dispensations from promise to the law doesn't mean the, some of those elements of promise don't go away. In fact, we see Jesus says that Israel was to be a light on the hill, right? They were to be a beacon. They were to be salt and light to the earth. Right, salt illuminate or uh, light illuminates and salt um, seasons and purifies. Right, that's what Israel was supposed to have been, and that's what Israel will be once again in the millennial kingdom. There'll be that sign for the nations uh, that uh, to which the nations flock for salvation, because there there is something about what Israel should have been from the beginning that should have brought people into the fold. Right now. The rules for salvation are a little different, right? In order to be saved under promise, right, you had to have been born of Abraham's seed, right? You had to be one of his descendants or part of his family, like with Lot. You see, when Lot leaves, it never goes well for Lot. He always has a problem, right? He couldn't just be happy uh, being with Abraham. He had to go strike out on his own. One of the times that he does, he gets kidnapped, right? And Abraham has to go save him, right? 
That's where that whole scene with Melchizedek plays out, right? The next time that he leaves, he ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? His wife dies, and then there's some shady stuff that goes down that ends up being, you know, making him the father of a, of a couple of different nations. Read it if you don't know what I'm talking about. If you don't think the Bible is exciting enough, um, read some of what goes on in Genesis. It will little, you know, send your mind for for a loop. Anyway, all that to say. That Israel, or excuse me, that that Abraham and his family were called to be a blessing to the nations, and they failed in doing that because they stayed in one place. And that seems to be a recurring theme, right? We have um, Adam and Eve were commanded to stay in one place for a while, right, to be fruitful, and multiply in the garden, to have dominion over the earth. They they sinned, right? Then we have uh, it seems like Noah and his family, and all of the the people that they were around, also. We're supposed to go out and have dominion over the earth. Uh, they didn't do that, right? Um, and then you have um, um, in Babel, they were supposed to go out and have dominion over the earth, and they didn't do that either, right? And so we have God saying, okay, since you won't go out into the earth, I'm going to call somebody out into the earth, right, to have dominion over a parcel of land that I'm going to give them, the promised land, right? The promise is a big deal for Israel. Okay, it's because the promise is where is the nation of Israel uh, as far as the, the people of Israel are founded, right? That's, I mean, Abraham is the father of the, the Israelite nation, right? Of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish people. But we have that failure, right? And like I said, in the original model, what you're going to see here is that promise runs the gamut of scripture from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50. If you're using kind of the old model, or if you're using the Ian approved model, right? It runs from Genesis 12 to Exodus 19. Okay. Because it's not until Exodus 20 that we actually have the giving of the 10 commandments, which in my opinion is the transitionary or the, the start of the transition from promise into law. Let's look at that. So if we go to Exodus 20, you're going to turn a couple of pages to your right. Um, so we see that a lot of this is them just wandering to Mount Sinai after they get delivered, right? They're, they're making their way through the wilderness. We see Moses do a couple of miracles, right? Uh, namely, getting water from a rock. Um, but then you have an Exodus, so in Exodus 19, Israel finally gets to Sinai. And then as Moses uh, goes up the mountain, right, he's given... The, 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 the 10 commandments, right? The decanomian, right? The, the 10 commandments. Um, and he, um, uh, basically brings these down on two tablets, right? Sees what Israel has done, smashes the tablets to the ground because he's mad. Right. Again, if you don't know the story, go read it. It's not all that terribly long. He has to go back up. He gets them again, comes back down. And these are the laws that he delivers to the people. The, this is the um the way by which Israel was to conduct themselves okay um and this is the first time we see Israel as a nation given a new set of rules by which to live up until this point it's still promise in my opinion but you see here in Exodus 20 and God spoke all these words saying I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery okay so we have again uh, God repeating what he has done, right? I th Again, I see this kind of as a, a, a the bookend of promise. Um, and he says right here, the first law, you shall have no other gods before me. Right, Second law, you shall not make your for yourself a carved image or any likeness of, of anything that is in heaven above or on earth below. 
right? Um, you should not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Um, honor your father and mother. Do not murder, right? That's a big one. Do not murder. It doesn't say do not kill. It says do not murder. It's a difference. You shall not commit adultery, right? You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife, right? Um, which is, I mean, like I said, this is, this was not necessarily new, uh, by terms of a moral code, but it was the first time, uh, that we see God giving the law to the nation of Israel. And again, it continued to go through. But what we see here is the establishment of a moral code that is going to distinguish Israel from the rest of the nations. Okay. That is going to distinguish Israel from the rest of the nations. And that's why the promise leading into law is such a big deal because it was by this moral code and the, the Levitical law. And then, you know, the ceremonial law that came in on top of that, that was going to uh, set Israel apart. Right, that will set Israel apart from the rest of the world and make them a light because they were to be a moral and upright and just and socially equitable society. Okay. And it didn't happen. And so they were judged. <clears throat> in fact, Israel departs the law quite a bit. And if you look at the, in, like I said, in Deuteronomy, if you look at the blessings and the cursings, right, that are there in Deuteronomy, you will see that the, that the cursings that they fall under. Are as as they get judged as the nation of Israel, uh, you know, through the the Old Testament, you will see that it's exactly in line with God. What God said would happen, right? They were not caught by surprise, even though we see them kind of caught by surprise as they're being judged in their failure for keeping this dispensation, right? Even Stephen's speech in Acts chapter seven really goes in or six and seven really goes into. Um, uh, what Israel did and how they didn't keep the law and how they were still not keeping the law and how they killed the ultimate fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ, right? This, the, 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 the Ten Commandments, right? And you have Jesus saying that the Ten Commandments and every other bit of law that was ever given to Israel is summed up in this and the prophets also, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself, Right? Against such things, there is no law, right? But Israel failed. And like I said, it's important to remember that when we're talking about the dispensations, it is never the fault of God that man did not keep up his end of the house rules. It is always man's failure. And that's why there are always these new rules that are being given. Well, man couldn't keep that. Maybe we'll do something else. Man couldn't keep that. Maybe we'll do something else. And this is not to say that there's anything deficient with what God is doing throughout the course of these dispensations. It's not to say that at all. In fact, had man kept to the dispensations, they would have been fine, right? We would have been in a much different place if Adam had never eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that didn't happen. And so here we are. And like I said, dispensationalism, dispensationalism seeks to explain how God relates to humanity and how humanity relates to God and the rules by which the relationship is governed. And really, we're trying to explain why there are differences between 
the different dispensations and why we see different people groups in the Bible behaving by different rules, right? The church is not required to follow the rules in the dispensation of law. The church has a different set of rules. There are some certainly that persist. As I've said before, there are things that endure through a given dispensational course, right? Or, or we call them, um, there are vertical um, pieces to the dispensations, right? How man relates to God. And there are horizontal uh, pieces of dispensations that are how man relate to one another. And oftentimes those horizontal ones endure where the vertical ones change. So I hope this has been a kind of a fun, It's like I said, I have a lot of passion about this topic because I think dispensationalism is one of the most useful things that we have as far as interpreting the Bible goes because of the fact that it allows us to look at what the rules were in a given period of time and it helps us to consistently, methodically divide the word and interpret the word in a way that makes it accessible uh, and applicable uh, to us as the church. Because if we don't understand that there are rule changes in how we relate to God, then we're going to get really confused. And there are passages in the Bible that are very difficult to comprehend outside of a dispensational mindset. I'm not saying that dispensationalism by any stretch of the imagination uh, is able to handle every bit of uh, every bit of the problem passages that we find with relative ease. That is not what I'm saying at all. There are still some really difficult passages, but it definitely helps shed light on some of those difficult passages. If you have any questions, I, I would encourage you to leave them in the comments below, whether you're watching this on YouTube or whether you're watching this on Facebook, uh, because I really do, once we get to this fourth video, want to um, be able to answer your questions about dispensationalism. And specifically, if you have a passage, I think this would be fun, if you have a passage that is a bit difficult for you to understand, a bit difficult for you to comprehend, I would love to take a look at it and see what a dispensationalist might say about that given topic, because there are some, especially I'm teaching right now through the book of Hebrews. And there's a lot dispensationally that we have to consider when we're talking or teaching through the book of Hebrews as a dispensationalist. And I think it clears up a lot of the misconceptions that or the misinterpretations that can be had in a book like Hebrews or in some of the weirder parts of Romans when it's talking specifically to the Jews, right? And Jewish believers. There's a lot of sticky wickets that we can avoid. Uh, but yeah, if you have any questions about, uh, like I said, we, we covered a lot of territory today uh, from Genesis 12 <laughs> through Acts 7, or Acts 7 through 9, right? Depending on, on where you draw those lines. It's a big chunk of scripture that we talked about. Um, and next week isn't going to be any less complicated. It's less scripture to deal with, uh, but it's more complication to deal with also. Um so I hope you come back for the next session because it's going to be a great discussion. Uh, but again, please, if you have any questions, leave them below. Again, if you're on YouTube, if you're on Facebook, uh, we do want to answer your questions. And I would like, uh, if there's anything that I've said that's a bit unclear, if there's anything that I've said that's a bit um, uh, amb ambiguous, right, please uh, ask me, ask Will, and we'll be glad to, uh, in the fourth installment of this particular teaching, uh, get you the answers that you need. Well, it's been a pleasure. Again, my name is Ian Renwick, and I'm a pastor here in Virginia, and it's been great talking with you. I look forward to seeing you in part three.